If you're a movie collector, you need Movies Anywhere. It pulls your favorite purchase movies from participating digital retailers into one central place. So you can finally say goodbye to scattered movie collections and hello to an organized library. With Movies Anywhere, you can watch your favorite movies on any compatible device whenever and wherever you want. Ready to grow and enjoy your digital collection? Visit MoviesAnywhere.com slash welcome and register for free. Registration with Movies Anywhere required. Open to U.S. residents 13 and over. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo and with my awesome friend, Kale. Hey man, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi Elmo. Uh, I'm Kale. Um, I am an, an atheist. Um, I haven't always been an atheist, but I, I do call myself an atheist now. I live in uh, Indiana. Uh, there's not really a whole lot that's interesting about me, I would say, personally. I'm a pretty unremarkable guy. Um, <laughs> so there you go. Okay, I, I think that, um, you know, when it comes to the worldviews that people have, there are so many factors and variables that come into play, you know, and decide that. And I think that you, you, you would have a lot to say, you know, and maybe you could tell us like your, you know, background, maybe even your life story on, on, on how you've become an atheist, you decided to be an atheist. I'm really curious, man, like maybe, you know, from us, from your, when you were, you were a child, were you raised? an atheist or a christian or or what yeah I, I was actually raised an atheist yeah uh and i think that's a good point that you make right there really are a lot of factors that go into worldview and i think sometimes we like to imagine ourselves as these perfectly rational machines that take in objective data about the world and always come to sort of like the best possible belief, you know, and that's, I don't think that's true. It's certainly not true for me. You know, I was raised an atheist. Um, my parents weren't very uh, strong about it. You know, I, I never heard my parents say anything negative or disparaging about any religion. In fact, the opposite, they really made an effort to introduce me to like a wide range of, of world religions and mythologies. They sent me to church they sent me to synagogue uh, like so I definitely had exposure um, but they just never told me that this stuff was true you know that was not what they thought and so they didn't tell me and so I didn't grow up that way and so for my whole life I've just never thought that any of these religions were true largely because of how I was raised um, and that probably would have continued more or less unreflexively, um, unreflectively perhaps, uh, until now, except that several years ago, I couldn't even tell you when, maybe, maybe eight years ago now, a friend of mine was getting married and he had been an atheist all his life as well. And his wife was Catholic. And this was a point of tension, not like a deal breaker, but a point of tension between them. And he was interested in whether, you know, it was reasonable for him to convert to Catholicism. 
it's like, is there something to this? Is it is it a thing that people can go out and reasonably believe, reasonably arrive at by examining evidence? And and uh, he got into some popular Christian apologetics, and he asked me at one point what my opinion of these popular Christian apologists was. And that really led me down a weird rabbit hole. Uh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how like your experience with, with popular apologetics has been, but for me, it's just a, it is a bizarre world that I had no, had no knowledge of before this and then got really sucked into it. It's, it's fascinating and strange. And I read a bunch of apologists, both modern and historical. And, you know, I wanted to know. I, I thought it was a reasonable question that my friend had posed to me, like, can you find good sort of intellectual reasons to affirm Christianity? And I figured, frankly, that you probably could, that if I read through this stuff, I would probably find that this huge amount of intellectual and philosophical work that's been done by theologians and apologists throughout history would accumulate into sort of a reasonable justification for converting to Christianity. Uh, and I didn't find that. I found that I, I really was disappointed, pretty badly disappointed by my delve into Christian apologetics. What I found was just really consistently weak reasoning, sort of a poor grasp of of reasoning from evidence, a lot of just kind of haphazard metaphysical speculation taken uh, to use the pun intentionally as gospel and then extrapolated from often in very wild ways um, to reach a conclusion that was clearly aimed at, right? Not arrived at organically. And this was really consistent. I And the more I looked at Christian apologetics, the more convinced I became that Christianity and theism more broadly really wasn't a reasonable thing to leave, that people really didn't have good sort of intellectual justifications for affirming it. And so I, over the course of this uh, project and interacting with the work, I really went from a position of being sort of a an agnostic thinking, you know, well, I, I don't have a good reason to believe, but maybe somebody does, to being a pretty hard atheist. Like I I am confident now that theism is false. And I'm reasonably confident that nobody really has a good epistemic justification for affirming it. And that's kind of where I'm at now, um, in terms of my stance on that. Yeah, it's pretty uh, understandable, man. Yeah, um, I guess you know when it comes to like an analyzing apologetics, you know, Christian or any other religious claims, there are so many things that the roads that one has to take to fully like understand every one of them, right? So during your your you know your quest for truth, I would this I would call it is I um, what was your standard? to say you know in a way like what would have convinced you to be able to say that oh because of this christianity or any or theism is actually plausible or something that could actually be metaphysically justified or you know you could actually you, you could actually know it to be true what, what yeah, would have no, convinced that's, you it's a really good question actually and, and a big part of sort of what I took away from this has to do more with that than it does with theism or atheism in particular. Um, and when I started, <laughs> when I started into this, it, uh, my contributions to the, to, to the discussion were, were pretty embarrassing. I, I didn't really have any good grasp of how to evaluate arguments. Um, and I would just, I would just look at these arguments and see something that I kind of disagreed with and then flounder around and scrounge up like, ah, this is why this premise is false. This is why this premise is false. And 
that approach was not very satisfying for very long. Um, and so what I became interested in is sort of exactly what you're asking about, right? Like how would we evaluate whether or not we have a justification, whether or not like some argument or a combination of arguments or a set of evidence provides a justification, an epistemic justification for affirming that theism is true. And in digging into that, I, I sort of started learning about probability theory um, and specifically uh, the the sort of Coxian or what what probably is more often called Bayesian interpretation of probability theory where uh, probabilities map to epistemic credences and you can sort of evaluate um, what epistemic credences should be uh, given certain inputs and starting positions in little toy examples. Um, and, and uh, <laughs> I, I actually got into this reading a, a paper by Brath, Manor, and Hutter on Solomonoff induction. Solomonoff induction is sort of a, a probability-based or information theory-based uh, theory of universal induction. It's actually super cool, and you should look into it sometime. And it came up as, a, as an alternative or sort of a a formulation of Occam's razor in a discussion. My brother knew more about it than I did, sent me this paper and I read it and I was really hooked then on this kind of information theoretic probability theory based approach to epistemology. I went on from that to read um, a book by E.T. Jaynes called Probability Theory, The Logic of Science, which sort of lays out how this Coxian interpretation of probability theory sort of underpins essentially all of the classic scientific um, hypothesis testing methods and inference methods. And so that was, uh, and then I was, at that point I was sold. I actually like went back to school as a result of this and, and studied statistics and uh, ended up really going into, into a very different career path as a result. Um, so to get back to your question more specifically, I think that what we want to see, what I would want to see from an argument for theism or an argument for Christianity is a, is, uh, I would want to be able to start at a pretty minimal, a minimal and modest set of background assumptions and either be shown deductively that these, uh, these assumptions entail um, the truth of theism or be shown uh, essentially that given this set of background assumptions and some uh, set of observations about the world that theism is probably true or would be probably true for some you know rational hypothetical inductor starting with those background assumptions and being fed those observations uh, that's what i would like to see and i think you could even say that an argument for theism is a good argument though perhaps not a sufficient argument on its own if if it were capable of showing that a hypothetical inductor with some modest set of background assumptions would be more confident in theism after being fed some set of observations than it was before. That is uh, essentially a fancy way of saying that if you could show me something that that really were was sort of good evidence for theism, that would be a good start, uh, though not necessarily sufficient on its own. In a way, you're, what you're saying is that uh, use theism to sort of demonstrate, to dem as to be demonstrable, and then I'll believe it. Something like that, right? You, you're, you know, you because you, you're looking for some like background assumptions that are just modest, and that can be shown deductively, 
and that and, and to entail theism, right? Yeah, so that would be that would be one good approach. Uh, you see, uh, sort of metaphysical arguments like um, first mover arguments, um, where they start with some sort of assumptions about how metaphysics is structured, about how causality is structured. And then if you if you accept all of these assumptions, then you sort of end up having to accept that there's some unmoved first mover, right? So there's that style of argument. And, and what I find generally is that these sets of metaphysical assumptions that they start with are pretty fraught. They're, they're, they're complex. They have a lot of, of moving parts in them. And you've got to accept sort of a bunch of different things before you can before you're really forced into the conclusion so that would be an example of a, maybe an immodest set of starting assumptions and i would like to see an argument where you could reach the same conclusion but with a much more pared down um like you know but but without making so many hard assumptions about how metaphysics works so that would be one approach and then the other approach would be sort of a an evidence-based approach and when it comes to evidence-based approaches you know i want you to be able to show your work sort of in in the language of probability theory or at least i want to be able to take your work and convert it into the language of probability theory and show that it, it does actually produce a meaningful result well you know when, when when it comes to the metaphysical arguments for theism right you sort of criticized uh, the like the kalam probably like the first mover and all that and the, all those theistic arguments to have like a modest set of yeah a modest set of starting uh, as an I mean, as an immodest set of starting examples the you know the, the assumptions that they already make like for example like um for example that how that how observation of causality right and then it's pretty basic like if if this if this is an effect and has a cause then then that causes an effect and has a cause and so on and so it they they basically like logically followed uh, while you know granting that causality is how the universe sort of it's a law that the universe follows right so i don't know how that's immodest i think it's pretty obvious right do you think that there's something going on other other than causality uh yeah so let's talk about ca causality do we actually directly observe causality uh i ask rhetorically because i sort of generally take Hume's position that no, we don't. We we infer causality from our observations. You know, I uh, I'm sitting here right now just fidgeting with uh, like a twist tie, right? And <laughs> I can observe myself thinking I'm going to bend this twist tie into a circle, and then my fingers move and they push on the twist tie and it ends up in a circle. And from that, we sort of infer this chain of causality, but the causality itself is not something we observe. It's, a, it's an inference, a sort of mental model that we impose on the world. And I'm not saying that there is no real causality. I, I think that there is. What I'm saying is that we don't know a lot about it. Um, if you think about Aristotle, right, Aristotle's notion of causality, and he sort of viewed things as having, yeah, this is going to be a, a butchering of, of Aristotle's metaphysics, which I haven't read in a really long time. But, um, but if you'll tolerate my, my inept summary here, he'd sort of look at an object and say, there are lots of sort of ways that this object could be. I'm looking at the twist tie and it could be straight or it could be a little curly cue. It could be a circle, I could tie it into a knot. And all of these potentialities sort of exist as potentials. And then I, as a, as a sort of agent, um, a cause, one of these potentials to be actualized in the twist time. And so that's, you know, that's a fine mental model. It's not silly, but neither is it 
you know, like, do the potentials really exist? How do I cause, how do I actualize one of those potentials? It's not a very complete, robust, or sophisticated mental model. It's just a little story. And maybe it's useful, but then, uh, you know, Aquinas is going to take some version of that story and say, like, yes, this is the fundamental truth about how reality works. And if we believe that that's the fundamental truth about how reality works, then, uh, you know, maybe like we end up believing in, in God. And for me, Aristotle did not pin down the fundamental truth about how reality works. He told himself a very simplistic story that elides a huge amount of detail. He knew nothing about electrostatic forces, subatomic particles, right? I can tell, I can, I can sit down and tell a much more elaborate and, and accurate story about causation uh, regarding this, this twist time than Aristotle ever could have. And like, I know nothing, you know, I'm not a physicist. I'm just, I'm like an idiot. So uh, Aristotle wasn't right. He hadn't captured the fundamental nature of reality. And when we, you know, look at an argument like Aquinas, where Aquinas basically starts by saying, yes, here, here in this simplistic story, we have captured the fundamental nature of reality. That's silly. That's a, an overburdened metaphysical assumption. That's an immodest metaphysical assumption. Uh, and, you know, so yeah, I'm not going to buy Aristotle's or Aquinas's conclusion, and neither should anyone else. It's not a good argument because taking this simplistic narrative description of causality as some grand fundamental truth is, is not reasonable. Mm -hmm. You said two things here, right? Like you said that if, if theistic arguments could provide like a modest set of background assumptions, uh, you know, on, on metaphysics and all of that and prove it to be demonstrable, then, and the other one is that if you, if uh, theists could provide like a sort of evidence-based approach that, sh you know, show, that they show their work in the language of probability, probability theory. Okay, so those are the two set standards you set. So in a way, I, I could, all, I, you, are you saying that, okay, so, when it comes to the Kalam, you know, I have my critique on it. Therefore, my critique shows that Kalam is inconsistent and has has immodest set of you know background assumptions. Therefore, I'm not going to believe in God. Also, because they're not showing like a lang of like a probability theory. Is that right? Uh. Not exactly. I mean, I'm not suggesting that William Lane Craig, like, literally needs to sit down and rewrite the Kalam in the language of probability theory. But I do think the Kalam is, is a pretty good way of illustrating uh, sort of why arguments end up being insufficient when maybe they might look like they're sufficient if you subject them to a more rigorous evaluative criteria. Um, yeah, but my question was, my question was that, yeah, yeah, my, yeah, yeah, my question was that, you know, um, you set a standard for what, for what can make you believe in God, right? And that standard was that, can theists provide me, you know, a, a, a modest set of background assumptions and prove it to be demonstrable? And also, and the the other standard is that could they like provide like an evidence evidence based approach using like the language of probability? So are you so in a way? I I don't I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but is the it like so is is it the is the reason that you don't believe in God literally because they there is no like modest. There is literally no like certain proof for God. Uh, so that's part of it, right? I mean, you could, like you said, there's sort of a lot that goes into it. You might say that the, the causal reason, the basic causal story for why I don't believe in God is that I was raised that way. And then you might also say, okay, but you, you, know, you could have come to believe in God had you been presented a, 
a good argument and that's true i could have been persuaded to believe in god by a good argument but i haven't found one of those and then also um sort of in the course of of studying this i've found arguments uh against believing in god right and and i you know i think that a lot of the arguments against theism sort of in the popular atheist culture are not very good ones uh, but some of them are pretty some of them are better and then you know i've constructed i you know i have i have constructed an argument which i think justifies epistemically justifies to my own standards um rejecting theism believing that theism is false uh <laughs> it's a little much to get into especially without text i can i can uh, let me give you a, a rundown right so um so the the basic idea behind the argument is that i i construct a a pretty minimalistic set of uh, criterion that your background assumptions, a, a set of criterion um, for background assumptions. And then I show that any set of background assumptions which meet those criterion uh, yield a probability for theism, which is extremely low, like a, a posterior probability for theism that's extremely low. And the set of background assumptions is essentially that um, that we do not exclude a posterior or a priori from consideration a class of um, sort of random reality actualizers. So I posit as an alternative explanation for the existence of a contingent reality, sort of a, a mindless, metaphysically necessary random reality actualizer, right, which just has a certain number of contingent realities, a certain set of contingent realities that it's capable of actualizing, and then it has some characteristic probability distribution over these realities, and it picks one at random and actualizes it, right? And we can there are we can imagine infinitely many different random reality actualizers with different sets of realities they can actualize and different uh, characteristic distributions over those sets of realities. Um, and sort of if you accept that this sort of thing is not impossible, then you really must conclude that theism is almost certainly false. And, and this is just because theism is sort of one particular cosmogenic hypothesis in this infinite sea of alternative particular cosmogenic hypotheses, uh, infinitely many of which, it should be noted, um, are better explanations for the universe as we see it than theism is. Uh, and yeah, so formalizing that, uh, I'd really have to write it out for you. I don't think I could. I mean, I, even if I managed to like speak my way through it, it would be it would be meaningless uh, to almost everyone. All right, all right. Maybe we could sort of break it down, man. Like, I'm really curious. That's pretty interesting. I never heard this argument before, and I really love it. Okay, so um, yeah, basically, what you're saying is that okay, the universe could be, be could have. There is a like theism. Is like is a particular cosmogenic hypothesis, but you're saying like, look, there are infinitely other hypotheses that are better explanations for the universe as we know it, right? Can you tell me like how you've arrived at this conclusion? Well, so imagine this, <laughs> imagine this very simple sort of toy example, right? Um, there. Let, imagine a, a a metaphysically necessary sort of mindless reality actualizer, and all it can do 
is it can it makes one choice from its characteristic distribution of possible of contingent realities and actualizes whatever reality it chooses. And the only two realities it can choose, right? The only two contingent realities it's capable of creating are one that looks exactly like ours and one that uh, is just empty, right? Like no contingent things exist at all. And that's it. So there's a metaphysically, <laughs> metaphysically necessary random reality actualizer and either it's gonna produce an empty contingent reality or it's going to produce a contingent reality that's just that's just indistinguishable from ours, right? And it will do that basically just by flipping a coin, not actually flipping a coin, but but randomly selecting between them with equal probability on each one, right? So if if that's the case, or for this hypothesis, right, the likelihood of you can take any set of evidence you like any set of observations about about the actual world that you might care to to look at and the likelihood of that evidence arising given this particular hypothesis is 0 0.5 right and that likelihood is sort of in the language of probability theory the measure of the quality of this explanation it's a measure of how well the hypothesis explains uh, the evidence and uh, so that's one but we can imagine another one where instead of flipping a coin having a 50 50 choice between these two possible realities it instead will pick the reality that's indistinguishable from ours 75 percent of the time and now the likelihood of you know our set of evidence based on that hypothesis is 0.75 and in fact a unique random reality actualizer hypothesis exists for every real number between you know zero and one you want to there's a random reality actualizer that will actualize a reality indistinguishable from ours you know 99 times out of 100 999 times out of a thousand nine whatever right all of the all of those exist in our space of possible cosmogenic hypotheses so theism, right, uh, your maximally great being was not obligated uh, to create a universe exactly like ours, a contingent reality exactly like ours. Um, theism doesn't entail perfectly with perfect uh, certainty that a universe like ours would exist, um, which means that the likelihood of a universe like ours existing given theism is somewhere less than one. It doesn't matter where, it's just less than one, less than certain, right? And as long as it's less than one, then there are an infinite number of these toy reality actualizers that provide a greater likelihood for the universe we live in than theism does. That's trivial. It doesn't even really have to be reached. It's just, it's a really trivial observation. There are many possible cosmogenic hypotheses. And yeah, I would agree that it might be the case that you no know, God was not obligated to create th this particular universe of ours that exactly is ours. But I, okay, but okay, uh, how would you, like answer the question how can something you know come out of nothing i guess like when it comes to that question like most theists simply are you know come to the conclusion of a necessary being that has always been there that yeah and how would you sort of respond to that well i think uh <laughs> Within, if we're if we're just talking about that as sort of a hypothetical objection to the argument that I've just uh, summarized, um, it's just not right. Like I, that argument in that argument, uh, all of the alternative cosmogenic hypotheses I suggest include the existence of a necessary something that's always existed. Right, like all of these random reality actualizers are 
metaphysically necessary things that like that's what the hypotheses say so i'm i'm not proposing any something out of nothing <laughs> scenarios here i'm proposing actually very straightforward analogs to theism where contingent reality comes out of a an uncont a non-contingent reality okay it's pretty in interesting wow so in a way these like mindless you know actual random reality actualizers are also sort of necessary beings right but simply it's simply the case that you know you're arguing against sort of a personal classical theist god with with like the with agency and the will and all that but in a way yeah yeah no absolutely you're exactly right um this particular argument that i'm talking about here is is not an argument against the idea that there is some metaphysically necessary cause of contingent reality um, i'm not particularly interested in arguing against that idea i don't think we have particularly good reasons to think that that's true but ultimately i don't care i don't care whether it's true i'm more concerned about whether you know classical theists have picked the the best or the most likely uh metaphysically necessary cause and it's clear that they haven't uh, it's clear that the the particular uh metaphysically necessary thing hypothesis that they've pinned their hopes on is is not just sort of a poor one in general it's astronomically unlikely um it once we sort of account for everything, it's almost certainly not not the right one. Are you arguing for like these like mindless rea reality actualizers because you so you're sort of like you know criticizing the concept that that the you know classical theists make about the nature of this necessary being? Like you're saying, like look, there are many possible possible attributes that this necessary being could have, or necessary something could have, and it doesn't have to be how you're. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I think you've I think you've characterized that very well, actually. Yes. Okay, so in that case, like for example, um, how if I you know I've talked to many theists, you know, and argue from like the the, the Aristotelian the Thomist approach of you know the actualities and potentialities, and when it comes to this, like, okay, you know, you're not you you're you you don't agree with Aristotle about about actuality and potentiality, okay, but when it comes to like for like how would I put it, um, like, you know, what, what could be the, you know, the cause, the, the reason for, for, for something to act, like this necessary being to act on anything, and then this requires some sort of at least like a, a, an agency, you know, that, that sources from this necessary being, right, and this agency has to, has to also describe the being to be like the like what do you call the like pure being i guess i don't, don't know how to explain it but but i guess my question is like do these um mindless real random reality actualizers at least like have a reason in and of themselves like to start to you know to begin anything yeah, that's just fundamental to their nature. That I mean, that's that that's the hypothesis. The hypothesis is that there is a, a metaphysically necessary thing, and you know, an essential feature of its nature is that it will select and actualize one contingent reality. That's just that's what the hypothesis is. Yeah, and that, yeah, this is really a good critique, bro, and. But when it comes to this, you know, I I don't think that all theists take the causality route. You know, there are those presuppositionalists, and there are those like you know, um, uh, epistem the religious epistemologists. So the route of classical theism is isn't the only route that theists you know take, right? So at least like how would you respond to those arguments like do you at least like would you analyze them and then um 
come to a conclusion for yourself oh this these arguments are not enough are insufficient or actually flawed right and, and yeah you have sort of analyzed them I so let's see i've looked into presuppositionalism a bit and it's interesting so it's it's sort of a a weird take on epistemic foundationalism i don't really have any problems with epistemic foundationalism but sort of the theistic presupposition presuppositionalists um it feels like they're taking sort of a legitimate I notion this epistemic foundationalism and and kind of bastardizing it like I think if you look at epistemic foundationalists there are a wide variety of ideas about what epistemic foundations might look like and presuppositionalists go say no there's only one there's only one presupposition there's only one epistemic foundation that functions and it's theism and that's just not true like it's really trivially not true there are lots of <laughs> there are lots of epistemic foundations that function just fine and so the the hard theistic presuppositionalism sorry can't say that word uh just isn't true uh it's it's not defensible and it's it's silly a soft theistic presuppositionalism might say like okay yeah there are lots of sort of possible epistemic foundations we might select but theism is at least one of the ones that works so you know that gives us a justification for affirming it and i'm not sure that's true but but also at the same time, it's very difficult to talk about justifications for affirming foundations of your epistemic system, right? That's sort of a fundamental problem. So if you want to say that, that you are a soft presuppositionalist and that you have taken the existence of God as sort of the foundational uh the foundation of your epistemic system um uh, that's that's fine um that's fine i'm not gonna like call you an idiot for doing that uh it's not silly even i don't think um but you're never gonna be able to convince me that i have to do that because i obviously don't i can pick any number of other foundations and also you can't turn around and say that then you are rationally justified or epistemically justified in doing that because again we can't really meaningfully talk about epistemic justifications for our selection of epistemic foundations so all you're doing really is i mean that's that's basically the same thing as saying that you just affirm theism by faith and i don't have a problem with that you can just choose to have faith that theism is true but that's all that epistemic presuppositionalism is uh, at its best and as far as the other thing the other sort of like category of arguments you mentioned it wasn't a term that i was familiar with it might be something where i've heard some of these arguments and just never associated them with that word or you know I, I, again, like I'm not like a genius of Christian apologetics. It, it, it's quite possible there's a whole branch of the topic out there that I've just never encountered. Uh, so if you want to like float one of these past me in particular, I'd be happy to, to take a stab at it. But um, but I don't have anything off the cuff, <laughs> nothing prepared for that. Okay, so I guess, yeah, like um, being an atheist doesn't really like make like obligate you to like know all the thesis arguments and then have to like like analyze and critique them you know in order to be an atheist right you just have to uh it, what what does it mean to be an atheist basically are you saying it's simply like you know you're someone just being honest and you know like with your intellectual integrity integrity and um uh is that like 
looking at all the arguments for theism and ju- and just finding that all of them don't really aren't really enough right or at least the ones that y- that you face aren't like actually leading to that conclusion yeah so i think you know atheism means different things to different people in much the same way that theism does it's not wildly different from theism in that regard uh, theism means different things to different people. When I say that I am sort of a hard, confident atheist, I'm mostly referring to the fact that I am confident that classical theism is not true. Um, and I recognize that there are lots of other sort of religious beliefs, lots of other, uh, I call them demiurge hypotheses, these sort of cosmogenic hypotheses that involve intelligent creators. And I can't argue against all of those. <laughs> I I would like to, that would be neat if I could figure out how to do it. If I ever figure out how to do it, I'll let you know. But uh, I don't see any good broad spectrum argument against all demiurge hypotheses. Um, so I am an atheist in that I'm confident that classical theism is false. And I am an atheist in that I don't, there are no sort of demiurge hypotheses that I affirm. And, and I have looked for reasons to affirm a variety of these hypotheses. Um, I've been presented with an, a large number of things that other people consider reasons to affirm them. And all of those have failed, yeah, have failed to sort of meet my epistemic standards. That's not to say that nobody will ever convince me again, but you know, at some point you get, <laughs> at some point you just kind of get bored uh, of looking for, <laughs> looking for new arguments for, for gods because they, uh, you know, you look and what you see really, instead of finding new stuff is the same stuff over and over and over again. And I just, you know, at some point you get, you get bored of like trying to sift through the chaff looking for uh, novel gems that are, that are worth talking about. And I hit that point a couple of years ago where I just didn't, like, I didn't feel like it was worth my time to continue looking because I had seen what I felt was a, quite a lot and just all of it had failed. So, you know, yeah, that I'm, a, I'm sort of a soft atheist in that regard uh, and a harder atheist with respect to classical theism specifically, if that helps. Mm-hmm. Okay, then um, when it comes, I guess you've come to the conclusion, okay, there is no God, you know, there, when, but at least like a soft atheist to the demiurge, um, uh, you know, theories but let's talk about like then like so you're here you know you're alive and you're living in this you know human civilization with at least like you know with you know living in a modern age i guess so what it, what <laughs> i'm gonna ask you just one big question like what is the meaning of life bro because you know when it comes to you know atheism a lot of theists say like it entails like uh nihilism right and that th- there is no intrinsic meaning and and everything but how would you look at it like like um if there is no god then what's the point you know why are we here um how should we behave i guess it's a big question so i i will say that that atheism doesn't entail any sort of nihilism this is a this is a pretty strong claim that that really cannot be uh, defended. Uh, I think a lot of atheists are tend towards nihilism or subjectivism, and I'm. I think that a lot of popular apologists tend to sort of conflate nihilism and subjectivism, even though they aren't really the same thing. Um, and I guess for me personally, yeah, I'm sort of a meaning subjectivists uh we we as humans construct our own meanings right we construct our own reasons for for living we we uh, ascribe i hope that's a real word ascribe our own 
meanings to our lives and that that's really all the meaning that there is just whatever we create for ourselves and i find that to be pretty satisfactory and i find it to be satisfactory because a it's very clear that we do this right like nobody's out there saying that humans don't create meaning for themselves uh so it it's pretty modest in that regard right um and the only immodest part is that is the part where I say there isn't any other meaning. There's just the meaning we we create for ourselves. And, you know, I guess I could be wrong about that, but but there just there's no there's no good reason, you know. Again, pe people tend to, to want it, want me to think that there is a grander meaning some meaning that wasn't just constructed by humans but they just can't they can't uh, present that in a way that makes it seem like an epistemically justified belief i don't i don't see the evidence for it so there definitely is the meaning we construct for ourselves and maybe there's some other meaning but if there is it doesn't seem like any of us have really figured out what it is certainly not with any like good confidence or or solid <laughs> epistemic approach so that's where i'm at in terms of the grand meaning question yeah okay well, when it comes to the like the subjective meaning that we create for ourselves um can you describe the me the subjective meaning that you've created for yourself and and is there like a you know like an, an axiom that that you base it on for example like you know human flourishing or any, or any of that i don't know you know i might in a, in a poncier moment say that i'm interested in human flourishing or our harm reduction but but that's a that's an oversimplification i think it's probably an oversimplification for everybody we all have pretty complex value functions complex internal value functions and those value functions are routinely inconsistent um uh, mine certainly is in some places i think everybody's probably is so i don't know i don't i don't have like a grand story for you about the meaning i've created for myself about my own life i don't i'm i'm not going to tell you that like like i'm i've decided to be here to maximize human flourishing because that's that's not really true i mostly just sit around and eat lunch you know that's not it's not a significant contribution to human flourishing uh, i think that the meaning we create for ourselves is mostly uh is <laughs> sort of a cobbled together edifice of lots of smaller meanings um lots of smaller goals and smaller values uh, that we apply, um, frankly, not, not all that well, for the most part, to our behavior. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to sort of, like, be comfortable and to, you know, try to make my, my wife comfortable. And, and uh, uh, I work for the Census Bureau. Um, so you know i i i derive some small amount of meaning from my my job i put out these economic statistics that people use and it's helpful to them but it's just it's a bunch of little things it's not a big thing i, I think our our construction of meaning comes in the form of lots of little things i i totally agree with that actually like yeah like no one goes about and says like okay the meaning of my life is to think help to, to maximize happiness for all of human civilization <laughs> it, we're pretty selfish i guess fundamentally <laughs> yeah you know yeah we're definitely focused on our on ourselves and our our immediate families and and you know we, we might construct tribes or clubs or whatever uh, but this is how we function like even if we'd like even if we'd like to imagine that we function differently, you just have to look at what people actually do. And that that's what people that's what that's how humans behave, you know. All right, but okay, so but 
at least like there is some some thought process that you went through like okay you know um i'm here right now and this is what i'm going to do um so what is it that you're doing right now like are you're just you know just as you said you know, you're making yourself comfortable make your wife happy and all that so um and then finding meaning in your job as well but what is it that you're doing right now in life and why are you i guess you know continuing to breathe to be alive to stay happy why do i why do i not commit suicide <laughs> is that what you're asking me <laughs> why have i like not it is an option i don't know it may be <laughs> sure it's, i mean i could i guess if i wanted to. i just don't i just don't want to and i think actually i actually think that's that's sort of an important point um that as humans we just we we come with this ingrained ability uh i'm going to jump briefly and make an analogy real quick so there's this theory about linguistic acquisition um, all humans acquire language through socialization with almost no exceptions right uh, i i can't think i don't think there are like any good recorded cases of a human who like was raised by other humans and didn't acquire language it basically just doesn't happen we have some feature of our brain and its job is to build a model of language like as you grow up and i think that the the same is true for values this is my sort of hypothesis my idea i think that as humans we we build up sort of unconscious uh value models or value functions that are partly informed by genetics and partly informed by socialization. Um, and that, you know, when I go out to get like lunch, right? Or I go, you might think of like the classic ice cream example. I go to get ice cream and I select between a variety of ice cream flavors. There's no rational reason for me to pick chocolate over vanilla i just have some you know mental structure some value function in my mind in my brain right that prefers chocolate to vanilla and i think this is broadly true um i think that we have pre-rational values i don't think our values are informed or constructed by rationality I think we just obtain values. So I don't want to kill myself because I don't. And that really is the root answer, right? There's no, I didn't reason myself into that. That's just how my value function is structured. And it's possible. I do think we apply reason to our value functions. Uh, like I said earlier, I think these value functions are often not consistent and i think we can identify those inconsistencies and we can uh, manipulate our own value functions to some extent or at least uh, make decisions make conscious decisions in places where our value function maybe is not consistent with itself but i would not say i've done that in the in the suicide example i haven't sat down and and reasoned my way to an answer on the suicide question. I just don't want to. There's no conflict in my value function. My value function is like, nope, just keep going. And that's what I do because that's it. That's the root, that's the root level explanation in my, in my view. That's pretty, I guess, understandable. I, I get what you mean, yeah. Okay. Well, Uh, Kale, it's been awesome talking to you, man, and I really uh, enjoy this conversation, man. And um, yeah, I I do agree that as humans, you know, it's sort of innate in us to just decide to live, you know, and not uh, maybe it's uh, evolutionarily attained. I think that's how you would take it too, right? No, obviously, part of it is that. Yeah, though I think you you can certainly imagine you can imagine like a culture in which 
one of the cultural values is suicide. It would be a little weird, perhaps, and if <laughs> and it, it might pose a threat to that culture's longevity. But uh, but you can certainly imagine a, a culture in which people obtain obtain this notion that maybe they should commit suicide through socialization. It may, I I'm not going to point to any particular society. I I, <laughs> I don't really know. I just say it's just a thought experiment. You can imagine there being a social component to this, uh, um, and and it not being purely genetic. That was my only point. Um, yeah, but yeah, lar largely I think, right? Obviously, evolution tends to want us to survive at least until we reproduce, not in any sort of agenty way, but in the colloquial way. Um, and you'd certainly see animals whose evolution has guided them into committing suicide immediately after reprodu reproduction, right? Like that's actually not that uncommon and it, it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. We don't do that um, probably because we tend to transmit so much knowledge to our offspring that that's, that's just super speculative on my part. I'm not an evolutionary psychologist. Um, Kale, thank you so much for the conversation, man. Uh, um, this has been awesome. Yeah, and um, thank you for let, letting me pick your brain. <laughs> sure thing. Yeah, well, hopefully you got something of value out of that rant there, ramble. All right, well, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks a bunch. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. University of Maryland Global Campus has more than 20 years experience providing affordable online education to military service members and working adults. Offering low tuition, no-cost digital resources replacing most textbooks, scholarships for those who qualify, and more. Learn more at umgc.edu slash podcast. It takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car, like cooking, but without the frozen dinner easy way out. eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment, so you can follow any recipe to a T. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs or a German luxury car that's as complicated as Oma's Rouladen. To cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride.